This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello, you're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, poetry editor of The New Yorker magazine. On this program, we ask a poet to select a poem from The New Yorker archive to read and discuss. Then, they read one of their own poems from the magazine. Today, my guest is the writer Saeed Jones, whose work has received the Kirkus Prize for Nonfiction, the Penn Joyce Osterweil Award for Poetry, and a Stonewall Book Award. Saeed, welcome. Thanks for being here with us. Thanks for having me, Kevin. So the first poem you've chosen to read from the archive is The Wind blows through the doors of my heart by Deborah Diggs. What was it that drew you to this poem? Um, a lot of reasons. I mean, one, I realized that I've had a, a long relationship with this poem. I remember when Deborah Diggs passed away. Um, I was in graduate school at Rutgers Newark. Um, and so that kind of brought a renewed attention to her work just personally. You know, it was kind of, I loved her, studying her before, but then I wanted to go back and and to kind of, I don't know, show my appreciation. And um, this was one of the first poems and books um, that I picked up during that period. And th- this poem just grabbed me immediately and broke my heart and mended it together and broke it again and mended it together line by line. But also just over the years, you know, I've experienced grief. I've experienced loss. I've been with friends and loved ones as they've, you know, gone through similar experiences. And of course, here we are in 2022, where I think Sometimes it feels like grief is the only thing many of us feel we have in common, you know, with our fellow citizens. And and so, again, I just feel like like any really great deep poem, the color of Deborah Diggs' lyrics just continues to kind of deepen as maybe my humanity has deepened and matured. Let's listen to the poem. This is Saeed Jones reading The Wind Blows Through the Doors of My Heart by Deborah Diggs. The wind blows through the doors of my heart. It scatters my sheet music that climbs like waves from the piano, free of the keys. Now the notes stripped, black butterflies flattened against the screens. The wind through my heart blows all my candles out. In my heart and its rooms is dark and windy. From the mantle smashes birds' nests Teacups full of stars as the wind winds round, a mist of sorts that rises and bends and blows, or is blown through the rooms of my heart, that shatters the windows, rakes the bed sheets as though someone had just made love. And my dresses, they are lifted like brides come to rest on the bedstead, crucifixes. Dresses tangled in trees in the rooms of my heart. To save them, I've thrown flowers to fields so that someone would pick them up and know where they came from. Come the bees now clinging to flowered curtains. Off with the clothesline pinning anything, my mother's trousseau. It is not for me to say what is this wind, 
or how it came to blow through the rooms of my heart. Wing after wing, through the rooms of the dead, the wind does not blow, nor the basement, no wheezing, no wind choking the cobwebs in our hair. It is cool here, quiet, a quilt spread on soil, but we will never lie down again. That was The Wind Blows Through the Doors of My Heart by Deborah Diggs, which was published in the August 24th, 2009 issue of The New Yorker. Um, and this appeared just a few months after she died, and I knew her a little mm-hmm. bit. And uh, the poem, I think, has this double feeling of, as you said, sort of uh, speaking to grief, but also it's part of our grieving uh, the poet. Uh, but I was struck hearing it again, at how it manages to take this extended metaphor of the rooms of my heart and do something different mm-hmm. with it, something unexpected almost in every line. A lot of that is the sound as the wind winds around, you know, it, it kind right. of plays little uh-huh. uh, sound uh, effects. And it's cool here, quiet, a quilt, you know, I love all that alliteration, mm-hmm. a quilt mm-hmm. spread on soil. I mean, so accurate, but also so musical. And I think the music's part of that. How do you hear it? You know what I mean? How does that sonicscape work for you? I mean, there's such a lushness, right? I mean, there, there's a, a kind of decadence to this poem that I think in a way calls to mind, I think another poet that is meaningful to both of us, Lucy Brockbroido. You know, there's a kind of opulence to this grief. And uh, as I was, you know, reading it and rereading it today, um, I was thinking about how one of the things grief does is it does kind of send you walking around the rooms of your house, whether literally or, you know, figuratively, you know, you just kind of wander and, you know, memories and observation is misdirection. I think it's just kind of that experience. And so I think that experience and the way she's using, you know, wind winds around and the quiet and the quilt, the way everything is double speak, you know, everything is kind of a little curved and and changing in real time. That's kind of what it feels like because I think grief intertwines our relationship to the past and the present and, you know, even the future as we think about what we've lost and what we're moving into, you know, now alone as the bereaved. And so I think the sound and the way that, you know, quilt reminds us of quiet or the image of, you know, the rake sheets reminding us of people who had just made love. I think that's just how a, a mourning person kind of thinks. And so I think she kind of brings it through the throat almost. I agree. I think also there's that it almost opens in the third line. It's scattering of the sheet music that climbs like waves mm-hmm. on the piano, free of the keys. There's almost, you call it a lushness, I think. There's almost a, a kind of release that the poem is, I don't know if it's seeking or achieves. Now mm-hmm. the notes stripped, black butterflies. There's this constant transformation. The notes become the butterflies flattened against the screens. What a great, powerful image. And I think what a metaphor does well, and I think she does it just incredibly well, is it isn't like something, it is it. And, you know, that transformation is there. But it also, for me, becomes almost more the metaphor. There's so much piled up of it that it's an experience. Yeah, and I mean, the boldness. I mean, she says towards the end, right? It is not for me to say what is this wind or how it came, you know, to blow through the rooms of my heart. She she rejects um, this desire to kind of compartmentalize mm. or just clearly kind of define what's going on. And yeah, I just, I mean, another example I think of 
the transformation she takes us through, dresses kind of getting caught up in this wind, and now the dresses are lifted, like brides come to rest on the bedspread, bedstead. I mean, that's an incredible image. And then there's just a comma, and we have crucifixes, <laughs> which is, you know, enough to kind of stun anyone. And again, another comma, and now the dresses tangled in trees in the rooms of my heart. Wow. And so it's almost like the staccato image, 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 image. Mm. I just feel like the images in this poem, again, are moving at the speed of the speaker's humanity. We don't know exactly the circumstance. I mean, because of all the allusions to marriage and love and romance, you know, and because I think we can't help but think of the speaker and Deborah Diggs interchangeably. We're thinking, okay, is this a speaker grieving her husband that she's lost? Um, but I just felt the sense that the images are moving as quickly as her memory is, you know, just going through kind of all of those snapshots. And it's just, it's so powerful. Um, but it also makes space for maybe the wonder, mm -hmm. you know, the surrealness. I mean, you know, it's like, would you trade this beauty for the person you've lost? I don't think, you know, that's a question a lot of people <laughs> would invite. But, you know, the sense that these dresses almost become people as they're caught up in this wind blowing through. Um, I don't know. It's just... That's interesting. I, I just feel like, you know, grief opens us up, mm. you know, it, and, and, it, and obviously, as I mentioned, it, it opens us up to the past. But I also think because we are narrative creatures in that loss, I think you often will find yourself really looking for meaning, looking sure. for clues, you know, purpose. What do I do now? Are you OK? And so I think this poem kind of works with this, you know, the speakers reading all of these images and trying mm. and failing to make meaning out of them, you know, but there's that that yearning, you know, and so I just think even though the speaker is clearly, I mean, truly brokenhearted, the way the speaker's imagination is running at like full tilt, I mean, this person is still, you know, very much alive. That's interesting. I mean, I think there's also a quality of if you can't make meaning, then perhaps you can make music, mm -hmm. you know, which has its own kind of meaning. And for me, that's what poems written in grief, which I'm afraid I've had to do as well. Um, mm. That's kind of what they do. It, it almost, you know, there's a time when, at least for me, I was writing poems just to survive or just to not be doing other things that I couldn't right. uh, achieve. And, you know, in a weird way, there's that kind of quality in the middle of the poem where the middle toward the end where the speaker says to save them. I've thrown flowers to fields, of course, you know, mm -hmm. having picked them up presumably already so that someone would pick them up and know where they came from. There's so much mm -hmm. in that. There's, you know, the irony of saving something that's already uh, presumably dying. And then also mm -hmm. the quality that there's this knowledge that someone would pick them up. It's mm -hmm. kind of a poem in a way, you mm -hmm. know, this irony of crafting right. a thing in language and an experience that, at least for me, is so much in the body grief. And, and so here it is, this physical throwing flowers in the fields, which is almost an act of mourning in many cultures, an act of honoring the dead, and that someone picked them up, which, you know, it's just such a powerful, I know where they came from. Uh, there is this kind of quality of a message in a bottle being thrown into the sea, yes. um, that mm -hmm. the hope is that it will be a recognition. Right, that their connection with someone or anyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and maybe that's what the future you mean uh, to mention. But also, I think that's what poems do. We don't know where they land always. And mm -hmm. this one, I think, 
is a bit more comfortable than I sometimes am saying, admitting that, like recognizing that. And I think you pointed that mm -hmm. out well, like it is not for me to say, to save them. I've thrown flowers to fields so that someone would pick them up. And, and I mean, where she takes that image of the flowers in, in the next line, come the bees now clinging to flowered curtains, which, first of all, is just a startling, I mean, a fantastic image. And then when you sit with it in the context that you've already mentioned, that the flowers are being thrown out of an, an attempt to connect and that the bees are now, you know, trying to essentially connect with false flowers is, is really tragic, you know? And so I think she's gesturing towards these attempts. And like you said, these attempts to make meaning, but we come back to the music and it's almost like the music will have to be enough. The image will have to be enough. And the way it ends, but we will never lie down again. The, this poem has so much going on. There's an element of like cold comfort, you know? Like, and it's really, cause she's not holding our hands. She's not, trying to lie to us about the future or or the depth of grief. You know, she's not trying to dismiss any of that. But at the same time, there is such richness in, in where this speaker is, even in the midst of the lost. Well, I, I can't help but think about that last line. We, it's where the we comes. It almost feels, and I can't help but think of it as a, almost a kind of threat, you know, like a kind of threat of the poem, but also a threat of how sorrow undoes one, you know. As you said, there's a willingness to, to talk about almost what Hopkins calls carrying comfort, you know, and that mm. kind of comfort of that he in the poem is refusing. No, I'll not. You know, he is mm -hmm. trying not mm -hmm. to go to this place of despair. But this poem does both, I think. It, it both admits it. And then sort of says, wing after wing, through the rooms mm -hmm. of the dead. And there's that great double play on wings mm -hmm. of a big house and the rooms of the dead. You know, that's just so the wind does not blow. Because by then, yeah. as you said, the wind is kind of transforming, at least, or the wind mm -hmm. is kind of touching everything. Um, and, mm -hmm. and it's almost nothing there, nor the basement. Mm -hmm. No wheezing, right. no wind choking the cobwebs in our hair. And maybe that's the first appearance of that we. Um, and that death, it, it does feel almost like a kind of comfort until we will never lie down again. We will never, you know, which is, of course, both true and not true. Yeah. I mean, this poem, it, it, I mean, this is why I think it's like, this is a poem you could live with. There's a reason why, you know, over a decade later, I, I still return to it and I'm learning from it because you also realize just as the wind has been winding round the hallways and rooms of this house, the speaker has literally been walking us through this house. And so we've gone from the living room or dining room where the, the piano is, we've made our way, you know, into the mantle, we've made it to the bedroom, we spent some time in the backyard with the clotheslines, and now we're in the basement. I mean, she's really kind of, it almost feels like kind of taking us down to the depth of grief. And so then when we land, um, and I love like the quilt spread on soil, like such a specific image, and then just, but we will never lie down again. It feels almost like she's slammed down the top on top of that piano. <laughs> like just, it's over. And mm. maybe because of the potency of the image of the bed sheets being raked, I think of, you know, maybe it's the speaker just acknowledging, yeah, I'm never going to lay down with my husband again. Or maybe because, you know, in the way that the speaker and the wind, there's just this sense of roaming. Maybe it's this sense of 
restlessness that the speaker is resigned to. Like, I'm never going to be at peace. We're never just going to be able to be at peace with how we feel. And so like the wind, we're just going to always just keep moving. It's, I don't know, it's, it's wonderfully ambiguous. Yes, I think restlessness is a great way to put it. Um, I don't know, there's something about motion in the poem that hasn't decided whether that is the way forward. Yeah, I mean, it just, I think there's something so special about, and I know I keep returning to this idea of lushness and opulence, but a poem that, I mean, it colors so much. I mean, it just really brings this emotional experience, this space, all of the rooms of the speaker's heart really to life. I mean, you can see every line of this poem. And yet I just love, I think, how Deborah Diggs and the way she wrote this poem, the restraint. Mm. You know, the, the willingness, you know, and, and, and maybe that restraint is functioning to, you know, preserve mystery, which I do think is important. But also, you know, as you mentioned, experience grief yourself. One thing when you're bereaved, you don't want people telling you how to feel. You don't want people kind of asserting, you know, their truth upon your own to a certain extent. You want to be honored, you want to be respected and maybe comforted, but you don't, you know what I mean? You want, there's like a boundary mm -hmm. that I think is really important to people going through it. And and I don't know, it, it's gentle, but I feel her kind of honoring that as a poet. You know, like often I think there would be a desire to maybe hit some big assertions toward the end, but the, the mystery is important here. I think that's really well said. I mean, mystery, we don't always talk about it, you know, because especially as you're starting out, clarity is a thing you need. Right. <laughs> right. Um, but here, you know, uh, ambiguity is so layered. There's right. at least seven types. I, I definitely yeah. think, you know, grief has that quality. And we don't often, especially as a society, feel as comfortable with that. Um, but I find that poems right. name that and those many states, that mystery, as you put it, uh, better than other forms. It really can live in that in ways that feel genuine and true to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, often when I praise poetry in terms of how it serves and how it functions in our culture, I think about poetry giving language to the ineffable. You know, we have these experiences or dynamics that kind of just defy banal language and cliche. And then you find the poem and you're like, oh, this is it. I carry you, I carry me, I carry you in my heart. You know exactly what that means. This poem actually, I think, functions in a very different way. It doesn't give me that language where I go, oh, there's the tool, perfect. Now I can go ahead and keep hammering along. You know what I mean? It's almost like the poem constructs its own emotional vocabulary that beautifully only functions within the poem. It's like the moment you leave the house of this poem, if you try to explain any of these lines, just they'd be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Your sheet music's butterflies, huh? You know, but as long as you're in the house of the poem, everything makes sense. And maybe that's a tribute to the power of, of lyricism when people talk about the difference between narrative and lyric poetry. Maybe that's what it is, that it just, it functions within the space that the artist has constructed. And that's enough. Yeah, that's just beautifully put. And I, I love in the lyric how you are that eye for that, time of the poem and i like to say just a few beats after at least you hope and i think that's very much true with this poem mm -hmm. absolutely now in our june 13th 2022 issue the new yorker published your poem a spell to banish grief which you'll read for us in a moment would you like to tell us anything brief about the poem first 
Um, I guess I would say that I, I call this a hard-earned poem. I hope every poem that, you know, people write isn't a hard-earned where you're just like, I really had to live my way into this one. But I did. And um, I had an experience a few years ago where I was really struggling with depression, grief, loss, as I think many of us unfortunately have. And um, I was literally pulling out my hair in my sleep. Um, and so I woke up one morning, as you will see in the poem, and there was like a little pile of hair next to my bed. And it was, you know, so gentle and so disturbing that I was physically kind of wearing myself out in my sleep because of what I was emotionally, men mentally struggling with. You know, it was, it was almost like I was haunting myself. And I haunted myself for several months. I knew eventually I would write about it. <laughs> but I felt, you know, I just had to wait to get myself together. And when I felt a little bit more clear, that's when I, I got to work. Well, let's hear the poem. This is A Spell to Banish Grief by Saeed Jones. A Spell to Banish Grief. Only when you wake to a fistful of pulled hair on the floor beside your bed and from a glance, can guess its weight. When you study dried tear streaks on your cheeks, like a farmer, figuring out where the season went wrong. When a friend calls out your name three or four times before you know your name is yours. When your name fits like clothes you've suddenly outgrown. When there is too much of you, too few of you, too you of you, and the mirrors wish all of you would just look away. When the clocks can't fill their hands and the calendars begin to doubt themselves. When you begin to agree with the glares from mirrors, but your reflection follows you around the house anyway. When you catch yourself drunk on memory, candles lit, eyes closed, your head tilted in the direction of cemetery grass, yellow and balding above what's left of the body that birthed you. And you try to remember the sound of laughter in her throat and fail. Only then, orphan, will I take all myself and leave. That was A Spell to Banish Grief by Saeed Jones. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm oh. really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> so that casts quite a spell. Um, and part of its power <laughs> is that lengthy one sentence, which I think is really powerful, 
form. And I think what I'm also struck by is something in the middle. When there is too much break of you, too few of you, too you of you, and the mirrors break, wish all of you would just look away. I mean, that's really incredible. And I think does capture the kind of, is it doubleness? Is it manyness? The multitudes mm -hmm. that the speaker is sort of encountering and none is enough or it's all too much. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, something I often say is that, you know, grieving in this case, my mother who passed away a decade ago. So in some ways, I think this poem is about the afterlife of grief. It's not immediate. It's years and years later. And in this case, you know, the 10 year anniversary of my mother passing away was in the middle of a pandemic where I was just surrounded by other people who went through a, a grief that to me, I couldn't even imagine. They didn't get to, you know, sit by her bedside in the hospital and have the traditional kind of rights, you know? And so I just felt so humbled. And so, yeah, it's like you enter that space um, where on one hand, grieving feels like it's the most human thing I've ever experienced. I feel, I feel so much more human having gone through this phenomenon. You know, my ability to connect and empathize with other people is just so much richer. On the other hand, I think if we're honest with ourselves, <laughs> at times it feels like there is a bit of a narcissism to grief. You know, I mean, that that literal kind of woe is me and you're, you're just so wrapped up, and as I mentioned when we were talking about the Deborah Dix poem, that sense of that almost everything you see, you're not seeing, you're only trying to find your way back. <laughs> so you can't even really stay rooted in the present because you're always kind of in this strange loop where you're remembering who you lost and, oh, that perfume reminds me of, you know what I mean? And so I wanted to honor the way that, you know, your friend's like, hello, Kevin, I'm right here. <laughs> you know, because in a way, one of the... um I think one of the way grief kind of embarrasses us initially is that it's just so difficult to to make sense of who we are now in relation to everything else happening around us in real time. Do you think the banishing is looked forward to or is it a, a scary uh, departure in the end there? I think at the end... It, you know, it's it's impossible. I mean, it's almost like, but we will never lie down again. You know, I think, and 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 this was one of those lessons. Um, we don't get to decide when we're done grieving. It's not up to us. And that's the thing. There is no spell. There is no spell. I would never wish anyone to go through, you know, all of the images in the poem, because I think even if you did, um, the truth is that you could not think about the person you lost for three years. And then one day you could be standing in a grocery store and someone standing in a certain way in a certain light could remind you, you know, of your beloved grandfather and you're back again. You might as well be sitting right at his funeral. You know, it, it's just the mind and the heart, uh, you know, they, they have their own wind, I guess. <laughs> what yeah. predict is kind of saying. Yeah. Well, and I think you're getting at some of that when you say when you catch yourself drunk, break on memory. Candles lit, eyes closed, your head tilted in the direction of cemetery grass. And it connects so beautifully, yellow and balding. I, what I love about that image is it both connects to the beginning of the fistful of pulled hair and then also mm -hmm. to this kind of other tradition, Whitman, who's right there. Um, but I also think there's something, I don't know, I thought this with the Deborah Diggs, is there's something Dickinsonian about it. 
And there's something in that way here too, for me, um, maybe it's just the directness of talking about grief and the formal feeling as Dickinson puts it and the way that mm. it is a kind of contemporary take on that. I don't know why, why it feels that way. Well, I mean, I think it's, um, as I mentioned, you know, like a hard earned poem. And I think what comes with that is the directness. And I think what I enjoy about the poem and what I enjoyed when I was, once I kind of had my sea legs with it as I was writing, what I enjoyed was that it felt like I had found a way to honor the speaker. And I, arguably the speaker is, is grief itself, right? Mm-hmm. He's like, you know, orphan. I'm, I'm not going anywhere. It's ultimately, you know, you can put yourself through hell if you want, but only then orphan, you know? Um, and then meanwhile, the you know, the object in the poem, which is the person who's actually mourning, the earnestness, <laughs> you know, kind of colliding with this direct bluntness. Obviously, I feel for the person in this poem, but, you know, this image of someone kind of drunk and sitting cross-legged on the floor and trying their best to kind of create a ritual, you know, is is a little laughable. Mm. It's a little silly. but But that... That's what grief does. You know, it's kind of like the person, you know, after the breakup and you're listening to your favorite song, you know, and all of a sudden you're crying. You know, it's just the way grief, the way loss can humble you Mm. is such an important human experience. But when you're in it, it's not funny. Mm -hmm. It's not ironic. It's not interesting. It's brutal. It's earnest and sincere. And so I just love the idea of, you know, now that I've made it, you know, 10 years. I mean, there was a moment where I couldn't imagine, you know, making it a few months past my mom passing away. So to make it a decade into this journey, it's almost like you owe it to yourself and to each other. As we explained that grief is such a shared collective experience to try to honor um, I don't know, the, the, the richness of this experience that at the beginning feels very simplistic. Right. Well, I think the you very much does that. It's a brilliant move to, as you say, you know, almost triangulate the grief and have grief itself address the reader, not just the speaker. Mm-hmm. I think that's the the power mm-hmm. of the you, um, because there's almost a, a, a sense that the spell quality creates the you. So there's a sense that you too are going to have to face this, you know, right. that I think is really inviting, even as it's daunting. And, and I think mm-hmm. that's really powerful. And those lines, like when you study dried tear streaks on your cheeks, like a farmer figuring out where the season went wrong, you know, and there's that quality of kind of primal earth, earthiness mm-hmm. that I think is really uh, elemental. Mm-hmm. And, and that seems also part of the spell. And if I start to look through, I see all the rituals you kind of mentioned, whether it's mirrors and calendars and drunkness and, um, you know, your bed and your tears, you know, those are all part of those rituals of living. But I I think that that forgetting too is there. Absolutely. You know, because what's the actual spell for banishing grief? Easy. It is to forget that the relationship existed, Mm. to never remember or honor or love whoever you lost. That's it's easy. Well, that ain't you know? easy, right? And exactly. And it's like, of course, no one would want to do that, you know. And so it's like to honor this person, to and to honor yourself, to honor who you are in relationship to this person is to accept the pain, is to accept the misdirects and the distractions and the, you know, it feels like your name doesn't even fit you anymore. We don't get to choose, unfortunately. And I think. 
you know, when you're in the throes of it, the thick of it, <laughs> that is just really hard to, even if you can logically understand it, I think emotionally it's very difficult. But I think with time, if we give ourselves time, um, then you can kind of develop that appreciation. I'm thinking too of this, and you try to remember the sound of laughter in her throat break and fail. Only then, orphan, will I take all myselves break and leave. There's so much happening there. There's almost this uh, evocation of Lucille Clifton, you know, every day something's tried to kill me and <laughs> yes. has failed. And failed. Uh, and the, yeah. the, and you're sort of tw twisting that beautifully done. And then also this all myselves. What's the all myselves there? Is it that the grief is kind of like the self being spoken of? I mean, I think it is part of it. I mean, I, I do think, you know, that the too much of you, too few of you, too you of you is this sense of how grief kind of enlargens us <laughs> in a way. Um, but also, I think, you know, there were many types of grief. There were so many types of loss. And again, because when I wrote this, I was very much thinking and, and like, um, not angry at myself, but I, I think I was... I remember just feeling embarrassed that I was still, I mean, you know, because they're, you know, we get triggered, things happen, and and suddenly you're overwhelmed. And I just remember feeling, how dare I, you know, be so worked up about this loss that I've had the privilege of living 10 years into when I am surrounded by people who had to say farewell to their family members via iPads. Mm -hmm. You know, how could I? And so I think as I was trying to make space for, for all of those, you know, kind of, I guess, contradictions, it occurred to me that there are just many griefs, yeah. you know, and, 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 and it's not a hierarchy, <laughs> you sure. know what I mean? But, but that, that we have to um, honor kind of the multitudes and, and maybe it, maybe the, the leaves of grass and the Whitman ultimately kind of took me there in a way I didn't understand in real time. I wonder about that. You, you said something that I think strikes me, you know, and I started what turned out to be not terribly long, a couple of years, I guess, before the pandemic. And I wonder if pandemic changed your poetry or if you think it's changed poetry, period, more more broadly. I think um, in terms of poetry more broadly, I think, sure. I imagine that it's, you know, it's a bit like studying the rings of a tree, you know, I think. 50 to 100 years from now, someone with perspective and distance will be able to look and go, oh, yeah, there's definitely some some bends, you know, some ripples that we can see taking place here. You know, I think it's very hard for us in real time to, to make sense of that. But I will say, yes, I know I've always had a sharp sense of urgency with poetry, the, the sense of People's time is valuable. Maybe it comes from, you know, coming from like a working class family, being a first generation college student, you know, as I was studying poetry. I just really remember feeling like, how could I make this poem worth my mother's time, my grandmother or my cousin or my uncle's time? There's so much they could be doing out there, you know? I think the pandemic for me has certainly... Yeah, enriched that it enriched is that <laughs> it is now enriched. It is now. It's in, it's in deepened <laughs> that instinct because you know, like I said, it's it's like I both 
do not and did not want to dismiss what I was feeling. I don't think that's productive. But also, I didn't want to be so narcissistic as to act like I was the only person in the world going through this. And I would argue what people are going through right now is far more complicated, right? I mean, thinking of people grieving loved ones lost to mass shootings when you're surrounded by another pandemic, another kind of, you know, rash of violence that seems unceasing, even though you have your own specific loss. And so I just think that, I think in my work, I see a cognizance. I see a desire to go, okay, how you feel personally, Saeed, is an excellent starting point. But where can we take this? Where can we broaden your generosity as an observer so that it can connect with more people? Because, you know, if you're going to write something of meaning, I think you have to be willing to meet people where they are. And so for me, I think I find myself studying history a lot more or just finding opportunities to kind of go beyond myself, um, because I think that's what what we all need and deserve. <laughs> Is that what characterizes your new book that this poem's in, uh, Alive at the End of the World? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think it, it for me in the writing process, it started with thinking of the afterlife of personal grief. And then, of course, you look up from your desk and you're looking around the world. And you're like, oh, okay, there's a lot more going on. And I was fascinated in the way that my personal experience with grief, I think, I feel kind of allowed me to kind of hear the like the dog frequency, you know, of, of the cultural phenomenon, this sense of systemic failure, the sense of what's going on around us. It's not just a fluke, you know, like the mass shooting or police violence or, or rape culture. These aren't isolated incidents. There's something bigger going on. I think my experience with grief kind of allowed me to kind of I don't know, begin to think bigger. It's it's hard to totally thread that needle, which is why I think I needed an entire book <laughs> to, to do that journey. But I think for all of us, I think if you go through an experience with grief, it does feel like the end of the world. It does feel apocalyptic. It totally undoes so much of what you understand about yourself, um, your loved ones, and, and the world in which you all live. And now... It feels like that's what we do on a daily experience. That's what it is to read any news headline is to totally reconsider what we knew. And, you know, just as with grief, I remember feeling like, oh, I've run out of maps. I've run out of blueprints. Like everything else here is now kind of uncharted. Um, unfortunately, I think that's kind of a collective experience. I mean, whether we think of, you know, climate change, for example, it just feels like we, we've all entered <laughs> this plane where, you know, the rules and the myths and the rituals to allude to this poem that we used to be able to count upon to seize control or make sense of things are crumbling right in front of us. And and so what then? And and I think that is where the, the book began to take off, the what then. Do you think poems are spells? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and, and I love, you know, and I, I mentioned, you know, Lucy Brock Broido. I think everything she just, you know, I love a good witchy poem. I'll say that. <laughs> and just, you know, so many of the poets you, you know, invoked, Lucille Clifton, uh, Rita Dove, um, you know, Deborah Diggs herself, Patricia Smith, you know, I think 
I've always appreciated poets who in the writing and the reading in the space of that poem, something happens. It's like the temperature in the room increases like six degrees <laughs> and then slowly cools down, you know, after, you know, after the poem is finished. That's what I've always wanted to emulate and to be able to live inside. And so, yeah, I think, I think any good poem worth its salt is a spell just because it acts upon you. Said that's a terrific way to end. <laughs> uh, thanks for acting on us today and, and for oh. <laughs> joining me. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to see you and talk to you. This was a great conversation. I really appreciate it, Kevin. A Spell to Banish Grief by Saeed Jones, as well as Deborah Diggs, The Wind Blows Through the Doors of My Heart, can be found on NewYorker.com. Deborah Diggs' tremendous last book was The Wind Blows Through the Doors of My Heart, Saeed Jones will publish a new collection, Alive at the End of the World, in September. You may subscribe to this podcast, the Fiction Podcast, the Writer's Voice Podcast, and the Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and the New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Corner, by Christian Scott Atunde Ajua, courtesy of Stretch Music and Ropadope. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses, with help from Hannah Eisenman. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts.